Father, you hear the prayers of your children. And the truth of the matter is that we should all be crying out desperately for you to speak to us. And uh, as a deer pants for the water, we pant for your word, for truth in a world that is aching for what is really truth, in a world that grasps at anything that looks like hope, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so we look to you now to speak with clarity, with boldness, not just so that we can feel good. We're not interested in that. We're interested in having truth in our lives, in you in control of our lives, us recognizing your authority in our lives and living in accordance with that, that your kingdom can, can expand. And so do a godly work in each of us today. I thank you so much for this opportunity. It is a privilege to come together and to meet openly and to discuss your word and uh, having the word of God talked about and, and, and lived out in our lives. So do a work. We invite you in your Holy Spirit here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You know, lying can make you money. Can. I was a uh, sales manager for several years uh, for a company that uh, our affiliate here in Springfield made multiple millions of dollars, and the lead salesman would sometimes not tell the truth for things. And, you know, we'd have to confront those things. And it's, in any industry, I'm sure that you have it. And it's unfortunate. Uh, P.T. Barnum leased a slave for $1,000 a year, parading her around, claiming that she was the 161-year-old former nurse of George Washington. And, of course, people paid out to look at her. Or try the CEO of R.J. Reynolds, who said cigarette smoking is no more addictive than coffee, tea, or Twinkies. <laughs> this is after a half a million people a year were dying of cancer from cigarette smoking. Now, some of the worst lies are those couched in religion. When we cloud deception in religion, it kind of has a way of almost implying God's approval of what it is the liar might be saying. Naked claims made by religious leaders without any corroborating evidence are often used to gain followers and even money, right? Uh, cults utilize claims about, you know, uh, a revelation, a miracle without any evidence. And people are so hungry, they buy it. It's one of the things I appreciate about Christianity is that it is a, an evidentiary faith. But even within Christianity, people still make false claims. But that's not the fault of the faith, even though that is done. A couple years ago, it was a Montana judge who ordered two men to wear signs on Veterans Day and Memorial Day. This was after they were convicted of a crime because in the midst of all the trial, they also lied about their service in the military. They had never served. And so the judge was so peoed about that, he had them wear this sign on Memorial Day and Veterans Day, specifically saying they had lied about their service in the military. Unfortunately, we aren't so lucky to have people wear signs. 
to let us know when they are deceiving us, especially religious lies that are kind of hard sometimes to get, to see. And they're even harder to admit because the human pride and arrogance couched in religion is, a, is especially a, a pernicious kind of lie and arrogance. I've got on my side, when I publicly proclaim that, and it's a lie, it's going to be hard to go back, right? It's difficult to admit a mistake once you claim God is on your side. That's a grave human problem. Lying, arrogance, not admitting when we're wrong. As serious and grave as deception is, I would submit that there's one that's certainly in the category of worst lie of all. I was going to say best lie of all. There is no best lie, but biggest lie, all right? When we believe lies about Jesus and particularly who he is, we are wrong about the most important matters related to life, right? I'd rather be wrong about the stock market. I'd rather lose a huge chunk. I'd rather be wrong about cryptocurrency or whatever else you're putting your money in, all right? But to be wrong about Jesus, we're all in need of more humility and less pride. Not everybody is open to new evidence, especially when it changes their perspective of foundational issues related to religion, related to Jesus. Consider an episode in the life of Jesus in John Five, verses 1 through 19. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now the Sheep Gate was a small entrance in the city on the northeast segment of the wall where some of the sacrifices that would be given in the temple traveled through. Unfortunately, I say unfortunately because some people viewed it differently, though you would have this invalid pool there, right, where the springs would come up from the ground and people thought it had healing qualities. I was trying to think what would be like that today where a majority of people would avoid, like maybe a homeless camp or maybe a facility where special needs people are at. I mean, you would have the blessed few that would go and minister, but the majority of the people would just stay away. That's kind of like this place, right? Uh, there were actually two pools about 300 feet long. Verse 3 says, And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, if one verse descri describes what the human race is about, it's verse 3, a multitude of invalids, blind, lame and paralyzed. Does that not describe the spiritual state of the natural man, the man without Christ? That described all of us. All of us. You might notice in some of your translations an omission of verse 4. This recognizes a verse that was in later translations that was not in the best manuscripts. So you'll probably not see it in some of your Bibles. It says, here lay a certain man, 
or one man, one solitary human being that the passage says, in the midst of the multitude, Jesus saw him. All these people, and Jesus saw him. Do you ever feel like that? All the things that are going on, I can remember ninth grade, Scroon Lake, New York. Jesus saw me. Hundreds of kids, but he saw me. And he drew me to him to where I could believe the gospel. There was a day, I hope, in which Jesus saw you, drew you in, brought some healing. That's the gospel. Jesus sees and cares for the one person. And whatever this man had for 30-some years wasn't too big for Jesus. Wasn't incurable. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And when I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now maybe Jesus recognized him from other trips that he had made. Maybe Jesus relied on his own omniscience to know this about the man. However it happened, Jesus knew that the man had struggled for years. And he asked him a question that kind of invites his, his participation, his agreement. Do you want to be healed? It's really not an odd question. It's, it's a question that I think we could pose a lot of people because there are some situations in which even though it's really bad, people don't want to move. They don't want to be healed. They don't want change. And even though their situation is miserable, they'll stay in miserableness. Is it possible that not only do people not realize their need, but I think this gets more to Jesus' point, they're so stuck in their situation they can't see that Jesus can help them in their need. So do you want to be healed? Christ asked the question implying he can do something about it. He's a healer. You say, well, duh. Well, listen, let me ask you this. You have a money problem, who's the first one you go to? Well, the fact is probably most of us think of all kinds of different ways. We can either cut expenses, good thing, right? Create income, good thing. But in a, even in a money situation, do you ever just invite the perspective of Jesus? Say, Lord, help me out here. There's a myriad of different issues that we face that I think God just wants his instruction to help. But the fact is we're independent people. And I don't think it's an unusual question that Jesus would ask. In fact, if you look at the people of Israel, check this out. This describes the people of Israel in their description. This describes the human race, really. It's out of Isaiah, and it says this. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the feet even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. 
This is not reason to point a finger. This is a reason to grieve. This is a reason to pray for one another. This is a reason to recognize that God brought us out from that pool and he saved us, right? But there are people who are sick and they don't know it. A young mother that I've known for 20 years or so, married, came out recently, turned her back on her husband and her kids, and in her own words are going to follow her own truth. I'm sure she believes that she's being brave, and especially with all the people who are now encouraging her for how wonderful she is for her independence and following her own truth, praising her. It sure feels like the right thing when you have people that will do that. But if you compare that with Isaiah, with Romans 3, she continues to rebel. Her head is sick. There is no soundness to it. What's our response? We should grieve. We see her in the pool. If you have a relationship, you might be able to have a conversation. But the fact is, and we know that we too were plucked from that. So when you notice people that are sick, empathize. I've not yet met a person who is uh, going to change their life from judgment, somebody coming along and condemning them. It's not that we not talk about the truth, but when we recognize the things that are in our families, in our friends, and trust me, I get it, you know? You go through this last political cycle, for instance, and you know, you look at all that goes on, and it's easy to just get angry you know, and I, I have words that fly out of my mouth of what I think of this and what I think of that, and it doesn't matter. But then I have to ask myself, have I grieved over these people that I think are blind? So there's something there, I think, for us to think about in terms of how we're viewing the invalid, right? Particularly in the spiritual aspect. Let's move on. The invitation of Jesus is designed to have the man see his need and then that Jesus was able to meet it. His response is that no one else has been able to put him in the bubbly springs. You see, if you were in the front of the line at the beginning of the day, before anybody was at the pool, you had, according to them, better chance to get healed because these springs that were coming out somehow had healing properties. That's what they believed. But if you were late to the game, you're kind of in the back of the pool and you couldn't get you know, all the bubbly springs. So you had to get it when the waters were more, more powerful, according to them. So the man couldn't get there. So he's telling Jesus, you know, I haven't been able to do this, blah, blah, blah. Was he complaining? Was he feeling sorry for himself? I don't know. But even if he was, let us notice that Jesus chooses this man. Notice what is not in this passage. Where does he express faith? None. Where do we see some gesture initiated by the man 
to seek Jesus out? None. It doesn't fit within a lot of people's theology. And by the way, did Jesus heal them all? Mm -mm. He healed this one because of his sovereign grace. God does use faith. And I, when I pray for sick friends, people I know, I'm believing for God to heal them. Nothing wrong with that at all. Continue to do that. But there are some times that God heals without the expression of faith, just like he did in this story. He tells him to do what he could not do himself. Get up, take your mat, and walk. But why him? Why not the others? Really don't have an explanation for these questions, but we can notice a message that was given as a result of this miracle about uh, authority. Later on in chapter 5, you can read through it. Jesus was saying, you know, I came to do what my father wanted me to do. And, you know, I'm going to follow my father. And um, he expands on this theme and the authority that God has over their lives. The Jews denied that message. They denied the miracle. They missed it. Here you have Jesus do a miracle. And all they could see was he did this on the friggin' Sabbath. I can't believe that guy. The gall of Jesus. Wow. Taking his bedroll, breaking the Sabbath law. See, the Mishnah, which was the Jewish oral law, added 39 prescriptions to the Old Testament law on the Sabbath. Old Testament law, don't work on the Sabbath. The Mishnah added all these prescriptions. It's really not too unlike the Christianity many of us grew up in, where they added laws on top of what the Bible has to say, that if you want to be a part of our group, you got to abide by these things. Probably the easiest mark is something like drinking. Uh, you often have to, to join a church, say, I will not drink. Is that in the Bible? No. Why do people add it? Because they can. Because people will follow. I think it has a way of actually shortcutting the work of the Spirit in people's lives to investigate something like that yourself instead of all just getting on the same bus and agreeing on all these subcultural issues. Amen. I've said this story before, and I, I, you know, the longer I pastor, the more you're going to hear the same illustration. So just shake like you never heard it, all right? But uh, I, I remember when I was uh, about 21, 22, I went to an ordination of two young men in a particular denomination. I won't say which, but it's definitely not what I want to be a part of. But two guys being ordained. One guy, I'm just telling you, my perception seemed like uh, an arrogant guy, had all the right answers, um, huffy, puffy, and uh, talked about the evils of Billy Graham, talked about how he would never take a drink, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, okay, bud. And then the other guy, sweet, mild-mannered, um, good, solid biblical answers. And then when it came to Billy Graham, which they asked, because this place was bent against Billy Graham for whatever reason, you know, the evils of Billy Graham, right? 
you know, this, this guy said, well, you know, I kind of like that people are coming to Christ. And then when it came to drinking, he said, well, you know, the Bible says don't get drunk. But as far as drinking, you know, he goes, I don't personally drink, but I'm not going to condemn someone who does. They did not ordain him because of that answer. And I said, I never want to be a part of this group. Some pastor friend of mine invited me to know what an ordination is like. I'm like, well, I never want to go to that kind of ordination. So it's just weird that people do this. But so we can look at the Jews and say, well, they did this, but Christians do it today all the time, right? We do. Listen to what the actual Mishnah says here. Check this out. The main classes of work are 40 save one, 39. Sowing, plowing, reaping, Binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing or beating or dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, loosening a knot. I guess you couldn't go to church and wear a tie then, right? Um, Sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, hunting uh, a gazelle. I guess you could hunt other animals, but not a gazelle, all right? Those dirty gazelles. Um, slaughtering or flaying or salting it or curing its skin, scraping it or cutting it up, writing two letters, erasing in order to write two letters, building, pulling down, putting out a fire. By the way, true story. Because of this, read a story of a Orthodox Jewish apartment building in New York caught on fire and they were arguing in the streets about whether to call the fire department or not to put out the fire because it was considered work. Burned to the ground. Then it says, striking with a hammer, taking out aught from one domain to another. And by the way, it means taking one object from one place to another. That was the kicker for taking the mat carrying it to another place. Jesus knew exactly what he was asking this guy to do. He knew exactly what those Jews were going to say, and he tells him, take that mat and move it. Show that you're healed. And what it's going to show them is they can't see the work of God. They can't see a healing. All they can see is that you broke their petty little rule. Human traditions, denominational traditions, Christian traditions can often obscure the divine intention of God's law. And laws like these confuse people about what God really wants. Listen, in some ways, I guess it'd be a lot easier if Christ community, we're no better than anybody else, but I'm just saying it'd be a lot easier for us to maybe prescribe for everyone here what those little laws are so that you could do those. We could all look the same, you know, and we could all um, stay away from evil and all the other reasons that people give for why you shouldn't do these subcultural things. Might be easier. You wouldn't have to worry about it. But what does that do? That takes the work of the Holy Spirit away from your life and you depend on us to figure it out for you. I would rather help us know the Word of God, learn the Word of God, then have a church where people are uh, trying to learn that for themselves, making those decisions for themselves, and, here's the kicker, living in unity even though you don't all agree about that. We agree about Jesus, we agree about the Bible, 
But there might be people that have a different view about drinking, and I can still come and I can fellowship with them. That all worked until I said, Democrat and Republican. Then (laughs) we don't want that kind of unity. It's amazing, isn't it? You miss Jesus' work. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. How many acts of Jesus do we miss? We completely missed it because we were busy looking at something else. We didn't recognize it as Jesus. His grace in our life. On the surface, the Jews' inquiry about who healed the man seems innocuous, but we know later on in the passage that uh, they were really upset, smelling out that it was Jesus. They were greatly bothered by this. I love the fact, by the way, that Jesus does not appeal to the crowd in all this. He doesn't sell prayer claws. He doesn't take an offering. He doesn't start a building program. It would have been an opportune time. He healed, and he withdrew before the crowd could gather. Today's model is, you know, have the healing, have the miracle, bring the crowd together, collect an offering, Talk about faith. Take advantage of the situation. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now this sounds very ominous, does it not? Whenever we read a passage like this, I'd like for us to consider that The simplest reading we ought to take at first and see if it works. Read it at face value. So at face value, this would say that uh, there are reasons that people are sick, sin in their lives. That seems to be what Jesus is implying. And you could say, well, uh, how about John 9, where the blind man was healed by Jesus, and Jesus said, this was not because of your sin or the sin of your parents. True story. But could both those things be true at the same time? Could there be a person who is, you know, ill, not because of sin, and somebody who's ill because of sin? If you look at 1 Corinthians 11, there was a situation where there was communion that was taking place within the church, and this church was wild, man. I mean, they would have wild parties during the communion time, drunkenness going on, Paul is saying, listen, because you're doing this, this is why some of you are sick and some of you have met a premature death. So it can happen. It is possible. But one of the things I look at in this particular case with this invalid here is that Jesus didn't mention what particular sin the man ought to avoid. That seems a little odd to me. Um, I'm not saying it's not possible, but uh, I'd like to consider another way to look at this. And that is that Jesus is simply giving the man a new set of kingdom values 
where eternity matters, where eternal matters are more important than the physical matters. Kingdom work is far more important than physical well-being. Jesus is saying, yes, being crippled is bad, but paying an eternal consequence for sin, you know what? That's worse. Having good health is great, but living a life of obedience to God is much greater. If following Jesus means sickness or death, there's nothing compared to the rewards of being a faithful servant, right? The worst that can happen to me, I get sick, I die, I'm martyred, I'm tortured, I'm persecuted. If I do that for Christ, that is my privilege. That is a sweet gift that I could give my Savior who suffered for me. Is that the worst thing? No, not at all. See, the American Christian, because of the world we live in, I know this is a generalization, but at least most Americans, we believe personal happiness, health, and wealth. It's like a birthright. And when it's fused to Christianity, it's a dangerous brew. Because I'm mixing my metaphors there, but I think you understand, all right? The Christian who swallows this thinking, you know what's gonna happen? They're going to limit their obedience to anything that crosses the line to take away any of their birthright, wealth, health. Listen, I know of Christian parents who have discouraged their children from getting into ministry or going on the mission field. Why? Because the sacrifice seems too much. I know they love their kids. They think they're looking out for them. They foresee a life of hardship, not making enough money, a conflict, not having stable jobs, And is it possible we've swallowed a deceptive way of thinking that all our marbles are in this world instead of in the other? Is there something worse than being an invalid? (laughs) Absolutely. You can miss out on the joy of reward, of living a life completely devoted to sacrificing for the kingdom of Christ. That is far worse, far worse. If I'm sick, if I'm an invalid, if I lose money, if it's for the sake of the kingdom, I'm good with that. I don't like that, but I can can be okay with that. I remember reading, and maybe it was at when I, right after I became a Christian, about Richard Wormbrand, behind the Iron Curtain, being tortured for Christ. They would have secret church meetings. It was outlawed. They did it anyway. Because they felt they needed to do this as a church. Secret meetings, and they would be tortured, found meeting together as Christians, having his feet beaten with rubber hoses, cigarettes put into his body, hung upside down for hours. How he survived these, I have no way of knowing how other than just the Lord. And instead of being bitter, 
He looked at it as a privilege to do that for the sake of Jesus. And I just remember thinking, wow, could I ever get there in my Christian life? Could I ever say, it's okay. Not that I like it, but I'm willing to do that for Jesus. I'm willing to lose that. Health, wealth, whatever. If it means obedience to Jesus. Verse 15. The man went away, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What we see here are two main problems with the people in the religious crowd. They believe that their man-made rules superseded God's intent. Done all the time, I've already talked about it. They did not understand the Sabbath, though they were legalistic about it. People who are legalistic do not understand holiness. Right? Secondly, they protested the relationship Jesus exhibited with the Father. They rightly understood Jesus was equal with God, and they resented Jesus reminding them of it. They they hated to think of Jesus as an authority over them. He expanded on that later in the chapter. And they resented the intimacy that he had with his Father. And then he, he makes this point that, you know, God is still active on the Sabbath. They misunderstood this whole thing about work. To mean don't work doesn't mean that we're inactive. It doesn't mean you don't get out of bed, all right? Think of this, how God is still working. There are children still born on the Sabbath, right? God brings children into the world on the Sabbath. Every deceased believer is ushered into heaven by God. He's active there. He's active with acts of grace and love on the earth daily, He's active certainly in my marriage that my wife has stayed with me for 40 years. That's an act of God, all right? Every person coming to Christ indicates that God is still active. So it's not like God is taking a nap. The Jews misunderstood work. They misunderstood the nature of God. And Jesus was simply doing what his father wanted him to do. He was answering to his father. His father was the authority. He could do nothing unless his father asked him to do it. Even his resurrection, if you look at the scripture, it says that God raised him from the dead because Jesus was submissive to the father even in the resurrection. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. I love this quote by Lloyd Ogilvy, who said this, and this, this really, I thought, hit close to the heart. He said, one wonders what would happen in the life of our churches if the works we seek to do were the work of the Father rather than our own. If they grew out of our intimate, loving relationship with the Father, instead of coming out of our brainstorming sessions and denominational packets, There is little power or life in any work we do, even though we call it Christian, 
where the source is our own ingenuity and effort. Not to say that brainstorming is wrong, but are, are we relying on God in this? They believed a lot of lies about Jesus. Let me give you, for purposes of application, one of the biggest lies I think we can have for 2021. And that is that I can live my life as a Christian, independent of God, without thoughtful obedience, and still have a meaningful, rewarding life. By independent from God, I'm just not relying upon God in this. Doing my money the way I want, I don't have to consult God. Doing my marriage the way I want, don't have to consult God. Working the way I want, don't have to consult God. Marriage, all this, I'll just do it. This is what you know seems right to me. Just gonna do it, all right? I'll give it some thought. I've read a few books, but I'm just gonna do what I wanna do. That's what I mean by independence from God. Live my own life, independent from God, without thoughtful obedience, not meditating on the word, not considering the word, and that I could still have a meaningful, rewarding life. You are fooling yourself. Now, let's be clear. God is not against money. God is not against sports. God is not against media, insurance, cars, houses, a million of other things that we have to traffic in to live this life. The issue is whether God is involved in the process. When God is a part, the word informs us of these things, and then we proceed with wisdom. When we refuse to align our perspective, to have the word of God reign in our lives, we operate in foolishness because we operate independent of God. And by the way, it's the same with politics and science. God is not against either one. However, when man constructs his own social order separate from God, and then he tries to explain his existence separate from God, mankind becomes a fool. Kind of at the rock bottom here of this issue is who is the authority in my life? Who are we fooling all these attacks on the Bible? It's not because people have great scientific evidence against the Bible. It's because they do not want God ruling their life. They do not want the word of God telling them what to do. And it's a spiritual problem in every one of us. Every one of us are born with that fleshly independence. We do not want somebody telling us what to do. If you think I'm wrong about that, how do you act when your spouse tells you what to do? How did you act as a child when your parents told you what to do? How do you act when your boss tells you what to do and you don't like it? We all have this thing in us. That thing is called the flesh. Mankind wishes to be his own authority. And Jesus is saying, I'm doing everything my father wants. We need to learn something from that. Everything the Father wants. By the way, aren't we glad the Father's communicated to us his will in the person of Jesus and in the word of God? Wow. He's not left us in the dark. Mankind wishes to be his own standard bearer. 
We now live with our own truth. Break that down. The next time you hear somebody say that, say, what do you mean by that? Do you think that everything you believe is true? Do you think everything you say is true? Have you ever been wrong? So what does it mean to live in my own truth? Am I the standard bearer? Those are all fair questions. People think truth is what I perceive it to be. I trust me. I am the authority. I am dissatisfied with my relationships, dissatisfied in my marriage. I have personal needs that have yet to be met, and I see myself as the source to get what I need. I live within my own truth. That's the world the human beings have created. Now, as humans, we have the freedom to choose. How foolish is it to think that every choice we make is a good one? I have to be authentic in my choice. What does that mean? You don't even know what your brain is telling you, what your heart wants to do? We have the freedom to choose. It doesn't mean or guarantee that what I'm choosing is good for me or others. You know why? Because I can fool myself. I can talk myself into doing things I shouldn't be doing that are wrong. And I can recognize that fleshly part. I say these things not to look in the pool and say, look at all those stupid invalids. I say these things so we can grieve for our brothers and our sisters and our families and our friends. Not to judge, to pray for them, to love them, to maybe if the relationship is there, to ask some penetrating questions. But humankind is like the person who takes the bow and arrow, shoots it on the wall, draws the bullseye around where the bow and arrow lands and says, that is my truth. See, when self is king, no one is allowed to question me. Cheating on my wife? Sex with a minor? Change my identity? I have to live within my own truth. I am king. Don't be fooled by that. You think that's any different than Adam and Eve? You think that's any different than the religious people with Jesus in John 5? I want to do what I want to do, and I don't want somebody telling me what to do. No outside source or authority has the right to tell me otherwise. It is human foolishness cloaked in today's vocabulary, but it's yesterday's sin, just like it was with Adam and Eve and those religious people. These are lies from a world system. These are lies from the evil one. And these are some of the biggest lies we have to face in 2021. Don't let anyone or anything 
draw us away from the authority of Christ, the intimacy of Christ in our lives. Let's pray.